Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes Now with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this time we're delighted to be joined by science fiction author of Junction and Interchange, Daniel Benson. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very nice. I'm on vacation. <laughs> How has life been for you over the past 18 months during this yeah. weird time in the world? It's been pretty weird. Uh, I'm lucky that I have a uh, job that allows me to stay at home. I'm a, I'm a English language teacher. Uh, so I, I switched over pretty easily. I just bunkered in here with uh, my wife and my daughters and my wife's family. And uh, we every every evening we went out into our little garden and we walked around in circles for a while and then went back into the house. <laughs> and we did it. So we're here to talk about the imminent release of your new novel, Interchange. But for our listeners, they may have heard you on our podcast before, because I think it may have been, it was either an Easter con or a world con where we first met around the time that Junction came out in 2019. Yeah, I think it was Easter con. Wow. It was a while while ago, but that was, yeah, yeah, it was a time of conventions and the ability to... (laughs) You know, to do all those kind of things, it, it seems it so long ago. Um, but yeah, I suppose just to kick off, before we get into interchange, I'd like uh, maybe to ask you about Junction. So people may not have read that, but um, it is the first book in, you know, in this uh, trilogy, I believe. So could you maybe very briefly tell our listeners about Junction and, and how that sort of sets up uh, your new novel, Interchange? Well, yeah, I have a, I actually have a, a funny story about that. Um, a friend of mine uh, who I reconnected with, he lives in the UAE now. And so we hadn't seen each other in person for a long time. But during the lockdown, everyone is equally far away. So I uh, I called him and uh, and I said, oh, you should, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the ARC, the advanced reader copy for Interchange. And uh, a couple of weeks later, we were having another conversation and I was like, how do you like interchange? And he said, well, I started reading it, but it seems to be referring to this prequel uh, where there's this wormhole in New Guinea. And then it turns out that the wormhole has been there forever. And they're the people, the New New Guinea Highlanders who've been uh, traipsing back and forth to through the wormhole for thousands of years and they've built this this village on the other side on some alien planet and then on the alien planet there are other wormholes that lead to yet more alien planets and that sounded really cool so i put i put down interchange and i went and i bought junction and i read that <laughs> <laughs> uh so so that's junction uh there's a planet with a bunch of wormholes on it one of them leads to earth the others lead to other alien planets and uh, over the past hundred that hundred million years or so, the uh, various biomes of the different alien planets have spilled over onto the surface of Junction. So when you go through the Earth wormhole, you're in a valley with Earth life in it. In fact, there's some extinct uh, creatures there that went extinct on Earth. Uh, but then, as soon as you leave the valley, you're in the biome of whatever the nearest wormhole is, uh, and they're not all biologically compatible with earth uh the the native people have built a village in the earth uh valley but they don't know anything about the other wormholes except the ones that are neighboring theirs because they're super deadly and you you really can't walk around and uh so in in junction 
in the first book, they they had to walk around through these things. They were in a plane crash and had to hike back to the Earth Valley. In this one, they're going off on adventure through a whole bunch of uh, biomes to get to the Howling Mountain, which legend says uh, howls. And uh, <laughs> one, one explanation for this might be because uh, it has a wormhole on it that leads to space. And the howling would be the, the air passing through it whenever the wormhole opens. And based on that theory, this eccentric millionaire puts together a, a expedition to, to go there uh, and, and sort of suckers the, the characters from the last book into doing this. Uh, and then we find out that they're all wrong about everything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember actually reading Junction, and you alluded to it just then. It was, for me, a really nice example of, of how you could write really immersive speculative biology, which I know, you know, has been around a long time. I, th- I think my own personal sort of route into that was through uh, you know Michael Crichton and the whole kind of techno thrillers he used to write, which had a, a biological spin. Um, it's always mm-hmm. been a favorite of mine. But I think it's the world building that that you put into Junction and the descriptions of of not only the landscapes but the but the flora and fauna in these in these different biomes. Yeah, how did you actually sort of conceive this whole world? Because there's so much depth in there. And you've clearly started to think about the idea of um, of exploring these worlds long before you've got characters who are, you know, leading uh, the reader through these same worlds as well. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I made the mistake in Junction of writing in the author's note that this project started as a field guide to an alien planet. <laughs> and one of the reviewers was like, well, maybe you should have written the field guide then. So I, I sort of teed up those those reviews. Uh, but it's true. I did. Uh, I started out. Um, there's a, there are a couple of books. There's um, Dream Snake by Vonda McInter. Um, and the novella, I think, uh, the, the Mountains of Mourning by Lois McMaster Bujold, um, which both have um, in, in the first one, it's, it's alien invasive species alien life from other planets that's that's gone native on earth and in the other one it's the opposite it's earth uh plants on an alien planet um but they both had they both had uh sequences where the characters walk through fields of of changing uh flora as uh vagaries of soil chemistry and and microclimate made it uh better for one kind of life versus another to live somewhere. And, uh, and then my, my parents live in Montana and um, in the Bitterroot Valley, there is a big problem with um, Dalmatian toad flax, which is an invasive species that has yellow flowers. You can look up at the, the hills and you can see the, the silver gray uh, native grasses and the dark green pine trees and these patches of yellow. That's the toad flax. And then you can see squares where the yellow's gone. And that's people who have gone in and, and pulled them out because they don't want them there. <laughs> uh, and so you can you can look and very clearly see this these warring biomes. Um, and I thought that was really cool. And so I kept imagining uh, 
scenarios where where how would that how could you get uh really fundamentally different kinds of biology coexisting with each other and i thought i don't want it to be yesterday that these aliens came into contact with earth plants because they would probably just kill each other um, we need there to be enough time for evolution to produce ways for these uh, different organisms to coexist with each other uh, so I said a hundred million years, that's a nice round number. Oh. And uh, so there, there must be, and it can't be like spaceships. Cause how do you get seeds on a spaceship that, you know, you'd need people to plant them. So it has to be a wormhole and the wormhole has to be somewhere interesting, but also somewhere that people, we wouldn't know about it already if it's been here for a hundred million years. And, uh, so that was either Antarctica or maybe, the middle of the Amazon or the New Guinea highlands. Uh, so that's where I put it. And in terms of how you got the reader to understand uh, mm. Junction, you chose to have uh, two of the main characters being uh, a scientist and also um, another one who's a, how would I describe him? Sort of like a, um, a TV sort of survivalist kind of explorer kind of character. Yeah. Um, to me, that was kind of interesting also because it wasn't, it wasn't the case of just plonking some random people who find themselves in that world, but people who actually are able to to understand and especially in the you know in the case of dice actually their their normal job is to explain yeah. you know the exploration of 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 new areas to an audience so to what extent did you think about how you would actually introduce the world to the reader huh actually it was easier to introduce the world to the reader than it was to introduce the characters. Uh, I went through a couple of different drafts trying to get all of the characters because there's there's Anne, the biologist, there's Daisuke, the, uh, the, the TV personality. Uh, and then in, in Junction, there's a couple of Indonesian reporters and a couple of uh, military people and the pilot of the plane that they're on. And that was a, that was a, a challenge to to introduce them all without you know, going down the line and saying who everyone was. Uh, and um, once they were there on Junction, I really just walked them through the map that I made. You know, I made a map of, of the area around the Earth wormhole, and I figured out where they would have to go in order to get where they need to be. And I also thought a little bit about climate and like if it was likely to snow that day or, or whatever. And, and in that way, the environment just did its own thing while the characters were stuck in it. Um, because I, I didn't want to have a situation like when people are sad, it starts raining. Uh, I wanted it to rain and that would make people sad. <laughs> uh, so, um, so as they, as, and then I would, and then I just let like Anne, um, she's sort of the subsidiary character of the first book, but in interchange, she's the protagonist. Um, and she has a very strong personality and I just let her explore the planet. And she, she has a good sort of systematic approach to things uh, as a scientist. So she's like, give me a minute. I'm, I'm going to get to the apex predator in a moment, but let it chew on you while I deal with the smaller uh, relative uh, so I can understand <laughs> how it works. And then we'll get to the apex predator once it's had its lunch. Uh, <laughs> I mean, one thing I noticed um, when I read Interchange was it really felt like the exploration of the of the universe you'd created was 
was moving into a more um, action orientated direction in places. So I felt there were a few more kind of, you know, set pieces where you really felt that it had moved from a core built around exploration to actually dealing with how once people know about junction and, and how the wormholes work, potentially that's an environment that is is ripe for exploitation. I don't want to give away too much, yeah. but um, it's clear, you know, it's clear that there's a lot of um, people who would be interested in, in, in exploiting, um, you know, how this works. Um, yeah. Was it always your idea that, that that's where you would take the story? I mean, did you write Junction with the intention of continuing it you know, into interchange and you know, had you mapped it out in that direction or, or was Junction a, a one-off and then you saw the reception to it and wanted to, to go back and do different things in that world? Um, well, I was flexible for it. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't start writing Interchange until the publisher asked me to, uh, until the publisher asked me for a sequel. But the, the very beginning of the story, as opposed to the, the world building of Interchange, was a friend of mine who I, who I dedicated Interchange to. Um, she's, a, she's a marine biologist. Um, and we were having this conversation about environmental uh, conservation. And she was like, what if we discovered a new continent like the Americas? You know, we, they'd been hiding behind something and we discovered the Americas. Would we screw them up as much as uh, would now in the 21st century? Would we screw them up as much as we did back in the 15th century? I, and I was like, oh, that's that's the story that I can set on my made up planet. And so I was always thinking about what is going to, what are people going to do with Junction? Because we're not going to leave it alone. Uh, that's not a realistic expectation. We're going to, everyone is going to want to do something with Junction. And, and then they're going to fight with each other to see who gets to have their way. Um, and in the first, in, in, in Junction, the book, uh, it's, it's just like the first couple of months after the discovery of the wormhole. So it's just drawing lines on a map. It's just countries trying to make their, their stake their claim to it. Um, in interchange, it's been a year. And so it's been long enough for the, for the borders to be pretty clearly defined. Uh, and now people are like, well, well how are we going to make money off of it? And I actually had a dream back when I was first thinking about this, about uh, an eccentric millionaire giving me a tour of his land on junction uh, in a helicopter <laughs> and saying, Oh, you see that strange looking alien over there. We use that to make a drug that cures cancer. And that kind of tree over there, we use that to make fiber optic cables and, and so on. And so that was something I actually intended to put in junction. And, and then it, the, the, the eccentric millionaire never fit into junction. So in interchange, I gave him his whole book um, <laughs> to play in. How has it been trying to write and publish and be creative during the past 18 months? Because we've, we've mm. spoken to a lot of different creative people in a lot of different industries and the challenges that the past year or so has thrown up have affected people in surprisingly different ways. Um, I, I know that it's in some way affected the the publication of interchange coming out but is is that is that the only impact that it's had has it affected you in your process of writing and and the topics that you find yourself writing about mm. the short answer i guess is probably no uh so interchange i'd already written 
I think the first two drafts before the pandemic. And then in the spring of 2020, I wrote the third draft and then went through all the editing and, and stuff afterward. And I have, I have very, I have a very vivid memory of, of sitting. Uh, now I'm in the luxurious uh, bedroom of my wife's grandparents who are in their village now because they can travel because uh, they're vaccinated. But uh, at the time, we were all here and they're they're quite elderly and and uh, so they're very they were very vulnerable and so we couldn't do anything we couldn't go outside we ordered our groceries into the house our kids of course stayed at, stayed at home um and i have this strong memory of of being locked into the little tiny guest room uh sitting on the bed because there's no room for a chair in that room with my laptop on my lap and uh writing the last draft of of junction uh while the snow falls outside uh and uh i noticed the the thing that i noticed was that i i kept using the word gentle or gently and i had to go back and do a search and replace to get rid of all of those words <laughs> <laughs> um, but i had i guess my subconscious was telling me to take it easy uh and uh don't be so stressed um it's funny because in the first draft, I had a whole subplot about how Anne, the biologist, is worried about uh, contamination by microorganisms on an alien planet. And so she's trying to insist that everyone who goes to Junction wear a full body biocontainment suit and and nobody does it. And she's mad at them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I couldn't figure out how to resolve that problem. And it seemed like it was different from the rest of the book. So I scrapped it. And I'm really glad that I did, because if I had, everyone would have thought that I was making some statement about uh, <laughs> wearing masks or something. Uh, so that was lucky. I think in the next, if if I write a, a sequel, uh, I will include the pandemic and how people deal with it on the other planet. Uh, so that'll be interesting. I don't know how they'll deal with it. Is that your intention? Do you think that there's um, another or a or you know maybe a final a final book in the in the junction trilogy or quadrilogy or <laughs> yeah what does it go on yeah right the increasingly inaccurately named hitchhiker's guide trilogy yeah. <laughs> uh, um well so i got i got the message from my editor to write the second book about a month before the first book uh launched and uh, so here we are uh a couple of weeks before the first book launches i haven't heard from the publisher yet uh but if they ask for a sequel i have an idea for it if it's anything like the process with interchange uh i will write up a, an outline and then my my editor don dario will say nah give me something better and then mm -hmm. i'll give him something better uh uh you were saying earlier that um you thought that uh, interchange was more actiony than junction and that's because I wrote Junction as a mystery novel, as a murder mystery. And uh, then the second book, uh, when I when Don asked me to write the sequel, I I said, OK, and I wrote another murder mystery. And he said, no, I, I don't want a murder mystery. I want something, some other kind of story. So uh, I, we ended up, we talked about it, and I ended up writing a thriller. So that's why it feels different, because it's a thriller. Uh, the next one, I don't know what it'll be. It's interesting. So outside of, of Junction and Interchange, you've written things that have appeared in, in other collections. 
Um, mm-hmm. And also you, and I'm I'm going to get the dates wrong, but because I've lost all sense of time. Um, <laughs> but you, uh, but you recently um, wrote uh, First Knife, which came out from mm-hmm. Image Comics. So I was kind of intrigued about that. I mean, you know, you write novels, you write short fiction. How did you end up um, uh, writing a comic book? Uh huh. Um, First Knife, yeah. That so there's something that was affected by the pandemic. Um, it uh, it was uh, five comic books and then a big omnibus that combined them all. And the original plan was that one would come out per month starting in, I think, February or March 2020 until the summer. And then the omnibus would come out in the summer. So we got the first two came out on schedule and then the pandemic hit and all the stores closed and no one was ordering uh, comic books. And uh, I think that it was two, at least two, maybe three months before the series picked back up again. Um, and in the middle, there was also a, a copyright issue over its name and the name changed. It was a big mess. Uh, but we ended up, uh, when the Omnibus came out, it, it sort of tied it up anyway. It tied it back together. And it's really beautiful. So uh, it, it all turned out okay. I started, I started uh, working on that a long time ago with Simon Roy. He is a friend of mine who I met on DeviantArt. Uh, we're both interested in uh, speculative biology, and he he had some cool uh, dinosaur people, uh, which are really great. You should you should check them out. I think if you search for dinosauroid plus Simon Roy, you'll get it. Um, and he and uh, a Turkish I don't even know what he is an artist, an author, a filmmaker, a creative shaman uh, named uh, C M Kosaman. Uh, he and Simon were talking about this uh, science fiction scenario and I started talking about it with them and I was practicing my writing tools. And so I asked Simon writerly questions like, what is the motivation of the main character and what's stopping them from getting what they want and and so on. And I think mostly him, a little bit me, but mostly he made a script for the first scene of the comic. And then this Russian guy, this Russian artist, uh, Artyom Trakhanov, uh, drew it up, made it pretty, uh, made it really pretty. And just to prove that he could. Uh, and that got us thinking like, we should really do this. We should really make this comic book. Uh, and it, it took us like five years because it wasn't anyone's first priority. Um, but we little by little, we did it. And, uh, now we're working on the sequel. So yeah, so that's my other that's my other big thing recently. And um yeah, I referred to it originally as as First Knife. What does its name change to when it came out as a So as so a, it it is, uh, it is it is First Knife now. So you you got the, you got the right name. The original name was Protector, uh which which wasn't as good anyway. So it's it's not so bad that we switched to First Knife. We're still trying to figure out what the sequel will be called. My wife keeps calling it Second Spoon. <laughs> so have you always been a fan of, of comic books? Is it always something that you'd want to um, uh, write in as a type of media? Or or was it just because of this interaction that came up, seemingly quite organically, that, that that's how it kind of came about? Yeah, it was really, it was, it's really Simon. Uh, I 
didn't I let me see. Not not really. I mean when I was when I was young I read things like Tintin and Transformers. Uh and I inherited a huge collection of old Marvel comics from my dad. Uh and so I read them through like junior high and high school. Um and and then in college I read a little bit like Bone uh and the the Naushka of the Valley of the Winds giant thing. Uh and but I was but I, I'm really more of a novel reader than a comic reader. It, it's it was uh, comics are the exception for me rather than the rule. Given that you you have such clearly thought out sort of concepts around the creatures that exist in in injunction and interchange, um, you know, is there ever going to be or have you been tempted to produce um, you know some kind of uh, uh, visual accompaniment to it all? Um, mm-hmm. And especially because you said at the beginning that that one concept was this idea of a field guide to yeah. you know, this ecosystem. I mean, is that something that you would ever uh, like to do to accompany these um, uh, these stories? Yeah. Well, I've made I've made spasmy gestures in that direction a couple of times, uh, but I don't exactly know how to. Honestly, I don't know how to make money off it. Um, it seems like the sort of thing that that one or two people really like, but the publishers don't know what to do with it. Uh, so I've tried like on the the speculative evolution forum on Zeta boards. Um, I tried making some sort of encyclopedia type uh, descriptions of some of the biomes of Junction, and uh, I I commissioned uh, an artist. Uh, whose name is Franz Anthony, to uh, make uh, an illustration of a shmoo, um, and he and it's, it's really he did a really beautiful job at it. Um, but I'm I'm not I, it's not clear how to make a field guide for aliens and and have it sell. And in any case, it's it's more clear how to write a science fiction book and sell that. Uh, so when I decide what to do with my time. It's it's writing the science fiction book, but that's sort of been uh, a dream of mine for a long time. Uh, like we talked about comic books and we talked about novels, but but really my thing when I was a kid was books like After Man and Wayne Barlow's Expedition, which are field guides to made up animals, uh, and they're extremely niche. They're extremely strange and difficult for people to understand but uh but they're they're the the art is really good and they're really interesting and thought-provoking and and so uh that's always been something i've wanted to do but it never quite happens so i take it that interchange has been your primary focus for the last couple of years but i was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about what else you've been working on or what you have planned to be released in the coming months and years uh okay well the um the big thing coming up soon, um, I'm told sometime in September. Sometime in September, you can expect the publication of Tales from Alternate Earths 3. Uh, Tales from Alternate Earths uh, anthologies are made by the Inklings, Inklings Press. <clears throat> and, um, in, and in the third edition, they have some really famous uh, alternate history uh, authors and, and also me. Um, and, uh, 
I have a uh, I have a short story in that anthology called Levski's Boots, and it's about the Bulgarian uh, revolutionary Vasil Levski, um, who in real life was arrested by the Ottoman authorities and executed before the Russo-Turkish War and Bulgaria's independence. So he never actually he never actually got to see uh, a country, Bulgaria. Um, and so my, my alternate history is what if he managed to escape the police and he continued to, uh, to live, you know, into the end of his, into the end of his life. And he, and how does he change history? Other than that, I have another, uh, right now my, my agent is shopping another alternate history time travel story that has nothing to do with Bulgaria. It takes place in Chicago. Um, and it's a detective sort of noir, uh, alternate history diesel punk thing. Uh, and I have, um, and I'm, I just finished writing the, the second draft, no, the third draft of a, uh, alternate history novel in which, uh, the Thracians an ancient people who in, in uh, real history went extinct, in the fifth century, maybe, uh, they survived secretly and they've been secretly manipulating European politics. We just didn't know about them. Uh, and, uh, they're living in the caves in the border between Bulgaria and Greece. Uh, and so that's, uh, one thing. And then, uh, probably in the, in the fall, I'll pick back up and write the second draft for a, uh, science fiction story set in a, city where different uh, species from different versions of Earth uh, have built a city together. So some of them have evolved from apes. Some of them have evolved from all sorts of other things. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they, have, they have difficult problems living with each other. It sounds like a really exciting slate of projects uh, ahead of you. Do you still have time to keep up with your own reading, though? Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything in particular that you've been reading and enjoying recently? Uh, what have I been reading? Uh, right now, I'm reading Legends from the End of Time by Michael Moorcock. Uh, I've been trying, and, and the reason that I'm reading that now is because it's a physical book that I happened to be able to find. Uh, I'm, I'm trying now to read one physical book between every electronic book. Uh, and so, and that means because my, my uh, I live in, I live in Sofia, Bulgaria, so my uh, access to American, uh, to English language, uh, physical books is rather limited. And so I get a, I get a, a more varied and chaotic selection. Uh, so it's a good way of introducing myself to books I wouldn't otherwise read. What are some other stuff that I've read recently and really liked? Uh, the last, the, my favorite book last month was The Initiate by James Cambias, which is about evil wizards. Uh, a secret cabal of evil evil wizards uh, and um, and the courage to be disliked which is not science fiction uh, was but was written by a Japanese psychologist and and a second Japanese philosopher uh, and then it was translated into English uh, and it's uh, it's about Adlerian psychology which I had never heard of before uh, but it was it was very interesting even though, his style is is peculiar, but I would recommend it. 
Going back to your earlier point, you mentioned it was quite difficult sometimes to find English language books uh, where you live in Sofia. Are there any uh, writing groups or writing circles that you're part of? And if so, do they focus on uh, speculative fiction as well? Um, so there, there is a there is a writing group in Sofia that I've had some connection with. I, I don't go to enough meetings to claim to be a member. Uh, but if, if any of your listeners are in Sofia, I recommend you check out um, the name of the guy in charge is Kalim Nenov. And the, uh, the name of the organization is the Human Library, Choveshka Biblioteka. Uh, and they're, they're very cool, but I, uh, we've been under lockdown, you know, so we haven't had uh, meetings. And if we had, I, I wasn't able to go to them. Uh, and, uh, I have a few other author friends who I talk to on, uh, you know, on the computer. Um, we're going to have a virtual launch, uh, me and two of these, of these friends on the 27th of July. So your listeners are welcome to come. Um, it will be me and, uh, Neil Sharpson and Trilby Black. Uh, and I will be launching Interchange. Neil will be launching his book, When a Sparrow Falls, which is a amazing cyberpunk, Cold War, depressing, <laughs> but really good, like depressing, in, like in a sort of John le Carré kind of way, uh, mm -hmm. novel. Um, and, uh, and Trilby Black's book, uh, is uh it's called Finnegan's Awake and it's it's not exactly science fiction but it's still it's a techno thriller that is very good technically um and uh it has this great scene where the main character is a math genius but isn't sure whether she is hallucinating everything that's happening to her or whether it's real and in order to and she's on the phone with a friend and the friend says, well, why don't I call the police and send the police to your house? And she's like, no, no, I think it makes more sense for me to flip a coin and see whether it makes a, ran a good uh, bell curve, um, <laughs> because that will prove that this is real life. Uh, and that's that's how I'm going to do it. I just need to flip a coin 10,000 times uh, <laughs> and then we'll see whether this is real life or not. Uh, so it's so it's a, it's a, a good trio of books. I think, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we met at an EasterCon probably first um, a couple of years back. And you also mentioned that you've got a virtual book launch coming up. I'm just wondering, what, how have you felt about, about the absence of not just conventions, I suppose, but those kind of outlets where you get to meet um, other writers, other readers, you know, fans in person at you know, yeah. events and actually the ability to, to get your work out there, physical events as well over the last 18 yeah. months? I, I miss them. Uh, I miss, uh, I miss conventions. Um, and, uh, like we met at a convention and then we, uh, and then we saw each other again at Worldcon and it was great. We could have these conversations, uh, and I could, uh, get some, you know, feedback from your expressions to know whether I was making sense or not. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, and, but that's, that's harder to do online. Um, I've tried going to a few virtual conventions and I, I haven't gotten anything out of them. Uh, it just doesn't seem to, it just doesn't seem to feed 
whatever gets fed at a at a real convention for me. Um, that being said, smaller conversations like with like with two or three people uh, are as productive and and um, fulfilling as uh, almost you know as sitting in the same room with someone. So uh, that's actually been really nice since the lockdown happened. Uh, I reconnected with a bunch of people who I hadn't seen for a long time. Uh, so I'm hoping when uh, we can start having physical conventions again, I can do that. And I can also talk to people online and have the best of both worlds. Going back to, to Interchange for a second, mm -hmm. these are books that are kind of seen through the eyes of uh, human beings going off through the wormhole and, and seeing what's on the other side and exploring that and, and relating that uh, to each other and, you know, and to the audience. What do you think would happen if, if the reverse happened? You know, the state of the, of the world today, what would happen if, if we were reading that same story, but from the perspective of, of aliens on the other side coming through the wormhole and, and discovering um, Earth as, a, you know, as the alien environment and as you know, a range of different biomes and things like that? Uh, well, so I actually, I actually kind of wrote a book like that. Um, and in that book, I said that, uh, the aliens, there are various species of aliens that, that come to earth and they, um, they all have their own agendas. Uh, so like there's the missionary aliens who want to convert humans into their religion. And there's the, the there's a bioprospector alien who is like excellent a new biosphere that's been cooking by itself for the last three billion years <laughs> it's going to be full of uh excellent drugs and so he uh basically takes ownership of the amazon uh and he's like all right everyone out of the amazon it's mine now um and uh and there's some other people who come to to larp basically where they say isn't it interesting that you guys are in physical bodies we're in physical bodies too hey let's kill each other uh, <laughs> and so every so all the different aliens have their own agendas and they don't have much rational reason to listen to what humans want or or help us or indeed refrain from doing whatever they want with us um but they have irrational reasons if they love us then they might treat us more kindly and so there's this whole uh, there's this whole scheme by various governments to seduce aliens. And in this book, the aliens are not at all remotely human. Uh, they they're extremely strange and and nothing that you would want to snuggle up to. Uh, but they but there are some very highly trained uh, people who who go out and seduce them and uh, mimic the aliens sexual signals closely enough that the aliens fall in love despite themselves. And then through pillow talk, we can revolutionize the energy industry. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I haven't managed to sell it, but I'm, I'm going to keep trying. Uh, but I don't know if that answers your question. I, I think probably the answer depends on what the aliens want. And they're probably going to want things for their own reasons that won't have anything to do with what either what we're afraid of or what we hope, you know, it would be nice if aliens came and told us how to live our lives and how to fix our problems. Uh, it would be bad if aliens came and enslaved all of us. Uh, I think that when, uh, when cultures have collided like that in history, what's actually happened has been much stranger. Uh, 
uh, it's been somewhere in the middle. It's interesting when you talk about that idea of, you know, aliens coming to Earth and um, how they would interact with us in an environment that we all relatively know and understand. But when you're writing the reverse, when you're writing about humans going out into you know, other landscapes, other biomes, how do you um, stop yourself getting almost sort of carried away with the world building and the um, ideas that you've created for them to explore and actually trim it back down to the plot all the time? Because I know it can get it, it can get really easy to just spend so much time exploring the environment that you've created uh, at the expense of forgetting that there are supposed to be characters who are meant to be doing things in that environment and actually moving the plot right. forward in a way that the reader is going to enjoy. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's easy to get caught up in the world building. Um, I'm, uh, I wrestled with that problem with uh, the, the book that I am writing now uh, about the, about the cave Thracians uh, because I invented a language for them and uh, the language is, is a lot of work. Um, but if I spent all my time writing the language, I wouldn't write the, the story. Um, and I've solved that uh, recently. I've solved that by saying, okay, this is my writing time. This is uh, nine or nine thirty until 11. Uh, that's the time when my wife is taking care of the kids and I'm writing and uh, I'm really lucky to be able to have this much time all at once to write. I'm not going to spend it doing anything else. Um, and I have a whole ritual I go through. I exercise to get the blood pumping. I meditate. I have a little altar with a little candle. This is true. Uh, and then I, and I do the same routine every day and I write. So my body is sort of ready to write. Um, and there's been a couple of times when I've said, I don't really have any ideas for writing this morning. What if instead I do world building instead? And each of those times it's been a terrible disaster. Uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's like when the, when the, the spacecraft is, is all fueled up and it's all ready on the launch pad and then the launch and then the, the gantry falls sideways <laughs> and, the, and the rockets ignite and the ship flies off into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it, it moves very quickly and very efficiently in this direction. Uh, and, uh, it's very, and it's very frustrating. And I, I get angry at myself in these, uh, situations. And so, uh, so I've, I've tried to solve the, the world building problem by, by segregating out the writing time and then other times in the day I, I'll do world building. Um, for uh for junction i had uh I, that was that was this was in the time when i had an office and i was outside of my house and i had two chunks of free time and in the morning i could write and in the afternoon i could i had a chunk of time where i was a bit tired so i couldn't write but i could draw and so i drew aliens um and uh and that's where that's where I did a lot of the world building. Uh, so hopefully I can, I can do that again. Is there any particular piece of world building that you did for 
junction and interchange that you haven't been able to get into the book and you would really, really oh. love to? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, there's a whole species. There's a whole biome that I that I didn't that I uh, removed from interchange because uh, my, because Anne, the main character, was getting close to her emotional crisis and I needed her to have her crisis at the right time in the book for something for the next thing to happen. Uh, and she couldn't wait to have her crisis. So I had to remove uh, the second to last uh, biome. Um, and it's really cool. It's, it's uh, uh, with, with the, the, with the aliens in interchange, I tried to design them from the locomotion up. Um, so one, uh, I don't, don't want to give spoilers. There are various ways that you can take a swimming animal and turn it into a walking animal. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the way that we did it is we had fish that swam, and then we had fish that wriggled in shallow, muddy reeds and used their fins to hook onto reeds and push themselves forward. And then we have uh lizards and amphibians that that wriggle on land with their legs sticking out to the side and then we have uh birds and mammals that that independently uh twisted the legs around so they come underneath the body because that's more efficient on land um and you could imagine other ways that could have been what if the fish had been on its side instead of on its belly um what if the fish had been upside down with its head on the ground using its mouth to walk uh, and I'm making these these motions with my hands, but your listeners won't see them. But imagine, <laughs> imagine I'm making the appropriate gesture for a fish walking with its mouth. Uh, the, the universally recognized gesture. Universally recognized gesture mouth walking. Right? <laughs> for mouth walking, right? So I had these these crazy. Uh, I think I called them tottering nightmares. Uh, so I want to have the tottering nightmares in uh, the sequel. In, in the third book, if I if I get the okay to write it, um, I also had uh, I also had some some more ideas for zero uh, for for a free fall free fall organisms uh, zero gravity organisms that I I didn't get enough time to explore. Um, but the the nice thing about the nice thing about uh, world building is I know that I'll have new ideas in the future and they'll be better than the ones I currently have. Uh, so whatever I'm talking about now, what you may eventually see will be uh, three or four iterations down the line of thinking, and it will be even stranger. That slightly regimented way of writing that you mentioned, where you make sure that you carve out time to work on the story as opposed to the world building. Um, were you able to stick with that all the way through the past of 18 months and all the uh, chaos that's been caused or w was it helpful? Was it unhelpful to, to have that regime while, yeah. while this was going on? Yeah. Um, it was very helpful to have, to have a regime. Um, this, I'm sure this won't be the same for everyone. Uh, it, it just turns out that I respond really well to routine Um and uh, I, I talked about my strange rituals. Um, they extend to eating a piece of chocolate after I write and patting myself on the back, literally, and saying, <laughs> good job, you did a good job. 
Uh, and I sort of trained myself like a dog to, uh, to perform this trick of writing every day. Uh, and, um, and that's really worked for me. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that other people's mileage will vary. Uh, but I think that this is pretty universal, that if you uh, keep track of what you do and when, and whether it was successful or not, so like keep a little journal, and uh, no, no and, keep a little journal, and you'll notice patterns. Um, and if you take, if you grab those patterns and, and uh, take control of them, you'll find that you can, um, you can be a lot more productive, I guess. Um, and so I, I started doing that after I read a book called Make Time. Um, so I read that maybe uh, spring of 2019, maybe, maybe 2018. Um, and so I started putting together a schedule and I found out, for example, that I write best in the morning, not in the evening. Um, and I, I'm uh, fortunate because I, I teach English so I can move my students around more or less how I want. So I, I cleared out a chunk of time in the morning and I started writing then and I started keeping track of what the good practices were writing. And then the pandemic hit uh, and I was stuck at home and I used that as an opportunity to experiment. Uh, I said, what can I do to myself that will make, that will make me write uh, better? Um, listening to music, listening to music with words, eating chocolate, uh, exercising beforehand, eating uh, protein versus carbohydrates before. Like I tried a whole bunch of different things. Um, and I ended up with this routine that evolved as time went on. Um, and when something changed, because it did, because the schools opened, the schools closed, uh, Paulina's, my, my wife's uh, grandparents were here, then they weren't, then there were even more of them. And uh, there was always something new going on. But my, my routine sort of chewed through that. It very quickly adapted to whatever new thing was happening and gave me uh, a space and a time in which to write every day. And once I wrote that thing every day, then the rest of the day was gravy. Like the classes I taught or time I spent with my daughters or books that I read, uh, it all happened and I didn't need to worry about it. So Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you um, uh, this evening and find out about um, all the things you've been working on, what you're working on in the future, your writing processes, and uh, indeed how they've um, affected and, and influenced the last 18 months um, in particular. As we've said, Junction, the first book in this series, was out uh, a couple of years ago. That's available everywhere. Um, the new novel, Interchange, is out on the 20th of July, uh, both published by Flame Tree Press. I've read it. It's absolutely fantastic. And I would urge everyone listening um, uh, to read it as well. But also, uh, where can people find you uh, online, uh, on Twitter, etc.? Um, so the best, the best place to find me is on my website, um, which is thekingdomsofevil.com. So no spaces, the kingdoms of evil. Yeah. Uh, I am on YouTube and Twitter as well. Um, on Twitter... What am I? I think I'm Evil Zero Dan. Uh, so you can so you can find me there. 
Um, on my website also, there are links to all my other uh, platforms. Um, I'm starting a new thing on YouTube where uh, a friend of mine and I talk about um, nonfiction books. Uh, we have one uh, series about Becoming Fluent, which is a book about learning foreign languages. And, uh, and we both talk about our experience learning foreign languages. And uh, another one called The Craftsman, which is about becoming better at something. Yeah. Uh, and they're both really interesting books. And, and my friend Paul is a really interesting guy. So I, uh, I'm excited about that right now. Uh, but I also talk about my books. Um, so uh, me and these two other authors are having a triple launch uh, for our for our books, um, Interchange, When a Sparrow Falls, and Finnegan's Awake. Um, and that will be on the 27th of July. Um, it's being hosted by the Minneapolis bookstore Majors and Quinn. Um, and, uh, you can get, you can get tickets, uh, tickets are, are $5. And when you're, when you get in, you have $5 of credit at their store. So really tickets are free, but they want you to buy something. Um, and, uh, there will be prizes for people who, uh, retweet or, or repost, uh, advertisements for this event. Um, and, uh, those prizes include the books, um, and uh, I don't know what we'll do. We'll we'll do some readings and answer questions, and and it'll be a lot of fun. So I invite everyone to join. And if you go to um, our website, we'll have links to everything there as well. So if anyone's interested in finding out more, um, everything will be listed there. Thank you so much again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was it was a great pleasure for me as well. So once again, we'd like to thank Daniel for joining us. His book, Interchange, is out right now by the time this episode reaches you. And you might want to pick out the first book in the series, Junction, first. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA, on our Facebook group, Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com. But for now, from Time for Cakes and Ale, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.